0: Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our November 2014 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Depression is common in many chronic physical health disorders, but the nature and extent of physical health comorbidities in depression are unknown. To learn more about this, the authors of this article set out to study a sample of primary care patients with depression. They used a large and representative database covering almost one-third of the Scottish population. The study received funding support from the Scottish Government and the Universities of Glasgow and Aberdeen. Overall, almost 1.8 million participants were included in the study. Individuals with depression were compared with controls. These groups were compared in terms of the likelihood of their having one or more of 32 individual physical health problems. Analyses were controlled for age, sex, and social deprivation status. The most striking finding was that the depression group was significantly more likely than controls to have a record of every one of the 32 physical conditions assessed even after adjustments were made. Further, the depression group was more likely to have multiple levels of comorbidity, including two physical health conditions and between three and five or more comorbid conditions. The authors conclude that depression in primary care is associated with a much wider range of physical health comorbidities than had been previously described. They believe these findings have important implications for the integrated management of depression with physical health comorbidities in healthcare systems around the world. As the major excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain, glutamate plays a critical role in normal brain function. Therefore, its dysregulation could lead to psychopathology in youth. Researchers are giving increased attention to the role of glutamate in childhood psychiatric disorders through a technology called the magnetic resonance spectroscopy. In this article, a group of authors from and supported by Massachusetts General Hospital and from Harvard Medical School reviewed the existing literature to see whether Glutamatergic dysregulation can be detected in these disorders with any degree of consistency and specificity. The authors found 50 scientific, peer-reviewed articles that included measurements of glutamatergic metabolites in pediatric psychiatric populations. They focused on subject population and psychiatric diagnosis, method of comparison, brain regions of interest, and glutamatergic findings. What the authors found most consistently were increases in glutamatergic metabolites in the anterior cingulate cortex and other regions in youth with ADHD. Limited data suggested increases in glutamatergic metabolites in youth with autistic spectrum disorders, emotional dysregulation, and high risk for schizophrenia. Decreases were found in youth with major depression, bipolar disorder, and obsessive compulsive disorder. They also found limited but consistent evidence for normalization of glutamatergic levels with treatment, particularly in bipolar disorder and ADHD. The authors conclude that there is a relatively small number of studies that have examined the role of glutamatergic regulation in pediatric psychiatric disorders. While some consistencies can be found, interpretation of the data is limited by differences in methodology. Although oral antipsychotics are effective, non-adherence to these medications is common and is associated with a number of negative outcomes. Two trials have found that maintenance treatment with injectable aripiprazole once monthly reduces relapse, but the question remains as to whether this treatment can be used in acute settings. Kane and colleagues conducted a 12-week, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial of aripipazole once monthly in 340 adult patients. The study was supported by Otsuka and Lundbeck. Patients in the aripiprazole once-monthly group had higher scores on the positive and negative syndrome scale, or PANS, and the clinical global impression of severity after 10 weeks compared with placebo. Improvements in PANS subscales were observed by week one. The aripipazole once-monthly group also showed significant improvement in personal and social performance scores. Aripipazole once-monthly was well-tolerated, with no significant worsening of extrapyramidal symptoms or metabolic parameters. The most common adverse events in the aripipazole once-monthly group were weight increase, headache, and akathisia. The most common adverse event in the placebo group was headache. The authors conclude that long-term therapy with arapipazole once-monthly 400 milligrams may be a viable treatment option for patients experiencing an acute episode. The full text of this article is freely available online. Please visit the November table of contents at psychiatrist.com. The clinical use of electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, is accompanied by safety concerns due to possible long-lasting effects on memory and other neurocognitive functions. In this randomized controlled trial of ECT and bipolar depression, funded by the Western Norway Health Authority and participating Norwegian hospitals, The authors compared the effect of ECT and pharmacologic treatment on cognitive function. Thirty-nine treatment-resistant bipolar disorder patients in the depressive phase of illness were included in this study. These patients were randomly assigned to either right unilateral brief pulse ECT or six weeks of algorithm-based pharmacologic treatment. Before and shortly after treatment, general neurocognitive function was assessed with the matrix consensus cognitive battery. Autobiographical memory was assessed with the short form of the Columbia University autobiographical memory interview. Both the ECT group and the pharmacologic treatment group improved on all cognitive domain scores with no significant differences between the study groups in any cognitive domain. Both groups had a reduced consistency in autobiographical memory. However, the reduction was greater in the ECT group than in the drug treatment group. The authors conclude that electroconvulsive therapy can be used in bipolar depression without compromising general neurocognitive functioning, but indications of impaired autobiographical memory persist. The risk of this side effect has to be weighed against the expected symptomatic improvement and against the alternative risks of poorly treated depression. The greater severity and chronicity of illness in youths with co-occurring ADHD and bipolar disorder deserves further investigation. A group of researchers used a retrospective cohort design to look at nearly 23,000 outpatient and inpatient medical and psychiatric service claims in South Carolina's Medicaid Claims Dataset. These claims originated between 1996 and 2006 from adults diagnosed with ADHD. 7% of the patients were diagnosed with bipolar disorder. This bipolar disorder group developed oppositional defiant disorder, anxiety disorder, and a substance use disorder later than the ADHD-only group. The odds of developing bipolar disorder were associated with comorbid oppositional defiant disorder and substance use disorder, longer treatment with ADHD medication, not being African American, and treatment with certain antidepressants before the first diagnosis of mania. Incident bipolar disorder was more likely with specific patterns of comorbid psychiatric disorders, suggesting that there are different pathways to bipolarity, thus providing a clinical impetus for prevention and preemptive strategies. The authors note that the delayed onset of oppositional defiant disorder and anxiety disorder in those with ADHD may signal a heightened risk of incident bipolar disorder. It may also provide a window of opportunity to intervene and preempt a progression to syndromal bipolar disorder. To achieve optimal therapeutic response in the acute phase treatment of schizophrenia, 65% to 80% dopamine D2 receptor occupancy has been proposed as a target with antipsychotics. However, it remains unknown whether the same degree of occupancy is also necessary to prevent relapse in the maintenance phase. To address this issue, the authors of this 31-patient open-label 7-month randomized controlled trial studied clinically stable patients with schizophrenia who were treated with risperidone or olanzapine. Subjects were randomly assigned to either the reduction group, in which patient doses were reduced by 50%, or the maintenance group, in which patient doses were kept constant. Plasma antipsychotic concentrations at peak and trough Before and after dose reduction were estimated with population pharmacokinetic techniques using two collected plasma samples. Corresponding D2 occupancy levels were then estimated using a model developed by the authors. After dose reduction, the authors used plasma antipsychotic concentration to analyze any changes in the estimated D2 occupancy. After dose reduction, the mean D2 occupancy decreased to 67% at peak and 62% at trough. 10 of 16 patients demonstrated less than 65% occupancy at trough. Seven of these patients did not achieve a threshold of 65% occupancy even at peak. Nonetheless, only one patient experienced relapse after dose reduction over a follow-up period of six months. The results suggest that sustained dopamine D2 receptor occupancy of more than 65% with antipsychotics may not be necessary for relapse prevention in the maintenance treatment of schizophrenia. Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is a significant psychiatric condition that may result from exposure to combat. It has been associated with severe psychosocial dysfunction. The authors of this study conducted a retrospective chart review of veterans with military-related PTSD receiving treatment at an outpatient clinic. The study included 151 veterans. All patients completed measures of PTSD, depression, and general functioning. All patients also received psychoeducation about PTSD and combined pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy. Psychiatric care was provided every two to four weeks until symptoms stabilized, while psychotherapy was provided weekly or once every two weeks. Psychiatric care focused on symptom management and treating comorbid psychiatric disorders. Patients who did not respond to first-line antidepressant treatment were offered a combination treatment with another antidepressant, an atypical antipsychotic, or both. The authors demonstrate a significant and progressive improvement in PTSD symptom severity over a two-year follow-up. They found that comorbid depression severity was the only significant predictor of PTSD symptom response. Surprisingly, neither the number of years patients had PTSD symptoms nor comorbid alcohol use severity were significant predictors of PTSD response. The authors conclude from their research that significant symptom reduction is possible in an outpatient setting. They also conclude that it is important to encourage patients to persist with treatment and evidence-based interventions focusing on comorbidity, especially symptoms of depression, to maximize treatment outcomes. Several pharmacotherapy options, including selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and serotonin nor epinephrine reuptake inhibitors are available for treating major depressive disorders. All serotonin reuptake inhibitors enhance overall serotonergic transmission to achieve antidepressant activity. However, pharmacology differences influence efficacy and tolerability profiles. Velazodone is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor and 5-HT1A receptor partial agonist that is approved for the treatment of major depressive disorder. In this study by Croft and colleagues, the efficacy, safety, and tolerability of Valazidone 40 milligrams per day were evaluated in an eight-week, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. Efficacy outcomes included the Montgomery-Asberg Depression Rating Scale, or mantras and Clinical Global impression Severity of Illness Scale, or CGI-S. Madras' sustained response rate, defined as a score of 12 or less for at least the last two consecutive double-blind visits, was used to evaluate treatment response that persisted beyond a single time point. There were 253 patients in the Velazodone group and 252 patients in the placebo group. On the madras, the least squares mean difference in change from baseline was minus 5.1 in favor of velazodone a significant difference that was considered clinically meaningful. Significantly greater improvement for velazodone relative to placebo was also seen on the CGIS. Velazodone separated from placebo on both measures at week two, and significant differences persisted for the duration of the study. Significantly more velazodone patients than placebo patients achieved madras-sustained response. The authors conclude that large and statistically significant Madras and CGIS changes versus placebo suggest that Velazodone patients achieved meaningful symptom improvement. Velazodone produced early and persistent treatment response, which is particularly important given the debilitating nature of depressive symptoms. This study was supported by funding from Forrest Laboratories. Disturbed sleep is a common symptom in cancer patients and often affects their health-related quality of life. Concern over the side effects of sleeping pills causes many cancer patients to turn to mind-body interventions to manage their sleep problems. A systematic review and meta-analysis of 15 studies involving 1,405 subjects was conducted to determine the effect of mind-body interventions on sleep in adult cancer patients. Mind-body interventions including yoga, mindfulness-based stress reduction, mind-body bridging, meditation, hypnosis, and qi gung were found to be efficacious in improving sleep quality in cancer patients for up to three months. The authors conclude that mind-body intervention should be considered as adjunctive or complementary therapies in the management of sleep problems experienced by cancer patients. This study was funded by the National Science Council. Complex sleep behaviors are activities such as driving, making phone calls, and preparing food that occur while a person is not fully awake. They are often associated with hypnotic drugs, especially xylepidem. To look at the effect of age on the occurrence of these behaviors, a group of researchers from Taiwan compared 253 adults and 64 elderly subjects taking xylepidem for at least three months. 25% of the adult patients and 17% of the elderly subjects had complex sleep behaviors, but the difference did not reach statistical significance. However, the authors did find that the behaviors were nearly three times as likely in those taking a zolepidem dose of 10 milligrams or more, and were twice as likely in subjects who had used alcohol in the last month. No effect of gender was seen. Further analyses revealed that a higher dose of zolepidem was associated with complex sleep behaviors only in the adult group, not among the elderly. The authors plan future studies to examine factors other than dose that may affect the occurrence of complex sleep behaviors in the elderly. In this article, the authors examine the continuity between symptoms of obsessive-compulsive disorder, and obsessive-compulsive personality disorder in youth. Their research was spurred on by debate among researchers and clinicians, some of whom suggest that both disorders are qualitatively different, whereas others place the two disorders on a continuum. In a related topic, substantial debate played out prior to publication of DSM-5 over whether obsessive-compulsive personality disorder should be included in the new dsm 5 category, Obsessive-Compulsive and Related Disorders. Had this inclusion occurred, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder would have been cross-listed in both the Personality Disorders and Obsessive-Compulsive and Related Disorders chapters of the DSM. Using an item-response theory approach, the authors aim to clarify whether inclusion of obsessive-compulsive personality disorder in the obsessive-compulsive and related disorders chapter can be justified. Their results show that both disorders can indeed be situated on a continuum. They can range from the obsessive-compulsive personality disorder traits perseveration and rigid perfectionism through clinically significant compulsions and severe obsessions. In this way, the obsessional thoughts especially can be considered the extreme endpoints of the obsessive-compulsive personality disorder traits. Therefore, treatment should primarily focus on these severe obsessions. Reconceptualizing the assessment of obsessive-compulsive related pathology in terms of this severity, however, may be one of the major challenges for clinical practice. Schizophrenia is a major psychiatric disorder that presents with abnormal thoughts, speech behavior, and perceptual experiences such as auditory hallucinations. The underlying cause of schizophrenia, however, is not fully understood. But thanks to genome-wide association studies which comb the genetic makeup of large numbers of subjects for genetic differences in illness, researchers have been able to identify certain risk genes that are found in schizophrenia. And with a brain imaging technique called diffusion tensor imaging, we are now able to image brain white matter integrity. These two techniques, genome-wide association study and diffusion tensor imaging, allowed the authors of this article to investigate the effect of CACNA1C risk variant, RS1006737, on brain white matter integrity, in 160 subjects. The study was funded by the Singapore National Health Care Group and the Singapore Bioimaging Consortium. The authors found that patients who were GG homozygotes had reduced white matter integrity in the left frontal, parietal, and temporal brain cortices compared to patients who were A-allele carriers. The CACNA1C gene's association with white matter disruptions in the frontotemporal brain regions may underlie clinical symptoms and neurocognitive deficits seen in schizophrenia due to the gene's role in calcium regulation within the central nervous system, neuronal signaling, and synaptic plasticity. The authors conclude that further clarification of the neural effects of CACNA1C and other genes will allow better understanding of the pathophysiology of schizophrenia. Apple and citrus fruit juices have been shown to diminish the intestinal absorption of certain drugs. As of now, however, no published studies have shown an effect of fruit juice on any psychotropic medications. In this month's Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade looks at the mechanisms that cause impaired absorption and considers the implications for clinical practice. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read this column and participate in the discussion. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the November issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.